Gospel of Mark chapter 1. Uh, if you're curious what we believe about elders or what the eldership process looks like, please feel free to email the elder team at rdchurch.com and we can explain that to you. But um, it is a uh, wonderful privilege to see those men uh, serving with us. We are continuing the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to get right to work. We're going to begin in Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 2, and read through verse 13. Yes, it's covering some of the verses we looked at last week, but that's just how we roll. Mark chapter 1, verse 2, God's Word says this, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. That is the word of the Lord. And I'm excited to teach you this morning. We are, as you see, continuing in the Gospel of Mark, and we'll be in there for some time. This is the first Gospel that was written out of the four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It is the fastest written. It's the shortest, and that's probably, probably because it was written to Romans. He gets right to the point. He goes through uh, action and, and all kinds of active verbs to get the action and story and the narrative moving very quickly. Uh, each gospel, as I shared last week in the introduction, if you didn't hear that, I encourage you to download it and listen to it, but each gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all telling the story of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, but all portraying Jesus a little bit differently for a different audience. Mark, for his part, is writing to Romans, and this is why he portrays Jesus as a suffering soldier, as a leader who actually loses to win, which would have shocked the Romans, or a king who conquers by being killed. It appeals to Romans and yet turns the Roman world upside down in its portrayal of who the great and only king is. And so Mark is writing as the last of the eyewitnesses to the cross, the last people who actually were there at the cross, saw Jesus crucified. They themselves are now being crucified, including the Apostle Paul, who was beheaded, but Peter, who was crucified upside down under the great persecution that began under the Emperor Nero. So everyone's dying. The guys who are on the front lines are dying. And Mark, who was once a failed disciple, once a guy who abandoned and walked away, who gave up, has since returned, has since been redeemed, and now is writing a gospel, which is likely the memoir of Peter, to tell us about where this all began. 
And so as I said last week, he takes us back to the very beginning and he is reintroducing us to Jesus. And it's my contention that we all need this as Christians because at times we have gotten so excited about everything but Jesus in our Christianity. And so we need to revisit who Jesus is exactly and who the gospel of Mark portrays him to be. Now, if you were going to introduce Jesus to somebody, someone asked you or you just were felt compelled to like, I'm going to introduce someone to Jesus, where would you start? Because there's lots of places to start. Some of us might actually begin in the manger and work our way forward. Others might begin with the resurrection and move backwards in the story. Maybe you'd start in the cross and go both directions outward. But Mark chooses an interesting place to begin. It's a different place than the other gospel writers chose. He doesn't go back to baby Jesus like Matthew and Luke do. And he doesn't go back even further to pre-incarnate Jesus before creation Jesus like John does. He begins with 30-year-old baptized Jesus. Adult Jesus. Now, all the disciples knew that Jesus' baptism marked a very critical moment in the redemptive story. It was such an important moment that Judas, who was one of the disciples who betrayed Jesus, and he had to be replaced so that the full number of the 12 was complete. In the beginning of the book of Acts, they were saying, okay, we've got to replace Judas, and how will we choose him? And so some of the criteria they used was we needed eyewitness. And the eyewitness had to begin with his baptism. So they said, from the baptism of John through his resurrection, if you observe that, that's what qualified you. And so it just follows that the baptism was a very important, if you will, moment in the history of Jesus' ministry. And Mark implies, because his first verse says, this is the beginning of the gospel, that everything sort of began to unfold in terms of redemption, when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. If you didn't know that, you read that in the Gospel of Luke, I believe. And Mark says that John's arrival in Judea, particularly out in the woods of Judea, but his arrival in Judea marks uh, the fulfillment of a very old ancient prophecy from a long time ago. So he starts with the book of Isaiah, and he says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, which was written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before this time, he says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And then the very beginning of verse 4 says, John appeared. And so Mark is making this connection saying, this is the guy that the Jews have been waiting for. This is the guy that fulfills this very old prophecy. And it wasn't just Isaiah who talked about someone who was going to come. Centuries earlier, God's last prophet, Malachi, also spoke of a messenger who would come and prepare the way. And he got even more specific. He said, this guy is going to be Elijah the prophet. And if you're unfamiliar, Elijah was a prophet, probably the greatest prophet that followed 
Moses, and he did all kinds of miracles. It was very uh, powerful, and there's a reason. They, they literally believed that Elijah was going to return. Uh, they often, like when Jesus, you'll see in the beginning or in the middle of Mark, they'll ask him, like, who do people say the name? He's like, well, some say you're Elijah, because they thought Elijah was going to return, because Elijah never actually died. Elijah actually was taken by God in this beautiful picture uh, through a fiery chariot and he was raised up to heaven. So they're like, well, he's literally going to come back. And so Elijah is who John the Baptist is kind of connected with, but even Jesus is connected with. The old prophets like Malachi said that Elijah would return and he was, for his part, a man of the desert. Elijah was uh, a little bit of a wild man. Elijah was incredibly bold. He took on governments and, and confronted wickedness straight on and did some pretty amazing things. That's very similar to John the Baptist. John the Baptist is not actually Elijah, but he comes in the spirit of Elijah. He's a wild man, just like Elijah was. In this case, we have a very strange description where he's wearing camel's hair, and he's out eating like this grasshopper trail mix, and that's all he's like eating. Like, it was straight today, we'd probably be like, he would start some new diet fad, probably, right? Or some style, and it would go viral, like, I'm doing the John Baptist diet. Like, probably would be like that, because we're weird as a culture like that. Back then, it was weird, it was strange, it was different. He's out there, a rustic, wild man, preaching the gospel, and eating grasshoppers and honey. It's just as strange as you might imagine it being. But he was a powerful witness. And there's lots to learn from John the Baptist. He is a godly man, and he's a great person in the story to kind of focus on. But one thing I will say about John is that, if nothing else, he's a guy whose devotion to the Lord embodied every part of his lifestyle. What he ate, what he wore, what he said, where he lived, everything. I think sometimes our Christian faith is like that extra little backpack we put on as we go about our life as opposed to the thing that shapes everything of who we are. And that's John the Baptist. As much as sometimes we're kind of like, dude, you're weird. In truth, he is just immersed in his devotion to the Lord. Now, by beginning with John the Baptist, though, Mark introduces several really important parts of the story that I think sometimes we miss. First, we see that the gospel story, the story of Jesus, the life and time of Jesus is not some separate story. It's in fact in a continuation of everything that the Old Testament taught. So more often than not, mainly non-believers, but some believers are like, oh, these are two different things going on. God of the Old Testament, God of the New, God you know, uh, of, of Exodus and, and all these horrible things, and then Jesus who's wonderful. It's like, no, this is the same story. And bringing John the Baptist in and Mark connecting it with the prophet who was going to come, the one who's going to prepare the way, says this is a continuation of the same story. And the second point that is something we even ignore more is the fact that Jesus is Jewish. Many of us have forgotten that. And we miss out on the richness that comes from understanding the Jewish faith, the Jewish theology, the Jewish culture. I was raised, my mom was born Jewish, raised Jewish, became a Christian, accepted Christ as the Messiah, raised me as a Christian with a little bit of Jewishness thrown in. 
So we would literally sit with my family at Passovers, and I mean her side of the family that were all Jewish and didn't accept Christ the Messiah. My mom would just kind of go, there's Jesus, there's Jesus. And so it gave me a much bigger picture of everything that was going on, a deeper understanding of everything that was going on that, that we're really blind to if you forget that Judaism is the foundation of our faith. And so ultimately, we see that something's going on that seems like it's totally Christian and not Jewish, and that's baptism. John is out baptizing, but we need to understand that baptism didn't originate with Christianity. That Judaism had baptisms and, and ritual washings that were very similar in just their normal way of life. As you read the Old Testament, you see that God at many times commanded them to wash themselves and immerse themselves, the priests and also the people at different times, so that they could be prepared to meet God in worship. That was part of it. And that became part of their daily life. And it was very similar, that is a call for baptism, to ask these people to prepare to meet the Lord just as they had been asked earlier to prepare to meet the Lord. So when John's out there in the wilderness saying, prepare for this great and awesome day of the Lord, which was what Malachi describes the day that the Lord arrives after this preparer, that would not have been unusual. And so what we see when John comes baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, everyone starts coming out. This isn't like cultish. This isn't totally different than what they might expect. All of Jerusalem, they're going, they're being baptized by him in the river, confessing their sins. So I only say that so that you understand John is not doing something totally foreign to what the Jewish understanding would have been. They would have not seen his baptism as pagan or as wrong, but he would have, they would have seen it as a, a really regular, kind of in the spirit of the Old Testament prophets, calling people to be spiritually renewed that they might view or receive the Lord when he comes and be prepared. Now, not everyone that went out to John's baptism was really excited about what he's doing. The self-righteous who didn't think they needed to repent had a big problem with him. It's not that repentance wasn't required or necessary, but there were those who went out that didn't think that they had any sins to take care of. But even them, they might have been irritated with John, but they didn't stone him for doing something wrong. They just thought, well, it doesn't apply to me. And so, although not brand new, what John is doing is a little bit different. It's out in the Jordan River. It's out in the wilderness. Uh, and it's very different from what their normal kind of baptismal rituals would have been, which they would all have probably baptismals or ritual kind of cleansing baths in their homes, basically, or at least in the city. So him calling them out into the wilderness, calling out to the woods, to the river, is a little different. And John and his unorthodox method, uh, methods were actually quite attractive, because you see that people were coming out in droves all of the country, all of, of Jerusalem, everyone is coming out there and they're ready to repent. They're coming out confessing their sins. They're talking about the things they have done. Now, repentance is an important 
theme or term or act in the scriptures. And I think it's fair to say that repentance prepares us to meet God. That without repentance, we cannot meet God. Now, I say it that way because repentance is somewhat of a gift. It's not that we're preparing to repent, it's that God is, in many ways, preparing us to repent. Repentance is something that God initiates. It is something that ultimately God accomplishes. Even though as we call people to repent and tell people to repent, it is God who is actually creating a desire in that person to repent. It's interesting what Paul writes in his last letter that he wrote in Scripture, speaking to young pastor Timothy about repentance. And he talks about specifically those leaders who are going out and calling people to repent, what they should expect and how they should behave. He says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, so you don't just go out there and pick fights, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, because it's not going to be comfortable. And he says, correcting his opponents with gentleness that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth. God may perhaps grant them repentance, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That's a powerful verse. And what that reveals to us is that every genuine act of repentance, every time a person turns away from their sin, turns away from walking away from the Lord and toward God is a miracle. It is by the hand of the Lord. It is not because that person figured it out. It's not because that person, you know, emotionally just feels bad enough that they'll go. It's because God has softened their heart and drawn them toward himself. It's beautiful. Now, I know that because the word repentance is an interesting word. It is the idea of changing one's mind and completely altering one's understanding. It is not just some emotional response. It's a volitional decision and complete transformation of desires. In the case of these crowds coming out, what's happening is they're not just coming out and you know, confessing one specific wrong they've done or even a list of wrongs that they've done. What they're really doing and what anyone who truly is repenting is acknowledging that the totality of my life has been going in the wrong direction. That every aspect of who I am, every thought, every word, every deed, it hasn't been as evil as it possibly could be because it can always be worse, but it has ultimately been in the wrong direction. And I need to turn and live and walk with the Lord. Now John is not offering salvation per se. He is just preparing them to meet the one who would actually do more than just get them wet, who would truly save them. Now, this moment of preparation though, this moment that precedes that baptism by the Spirit, if you will, the moment that precedes meeting the Lord is hugely important because it is a moment of preparation, an important step 
that is required for us to come face to face with the sin that has been keeping us from God. We actually have to look at it. We actually have to confess it. And this is the role that wilderness, at least one of the roles that wilderness takes in our lives. John's in the wilderness. And wilderness is an interesting theme throughout the story of God. It comes up quite frequently, and it's come up twice in this short number of verses. And wilderness, if you kind of survey how it's used in the Bible, it's a place of testing. And by that I mean more refinement, because when God tests us, guess what? He already knows what's there. But He's refining us and purifying us. And in that process of testing, the wilderness is a place where we're able to see the sins that we've committed and we're able to see the sins that have been committed against us. What I mean is wilderness is not necessarily the place where we come face to face with the Lord. As much as it is that the Lord, the Lord brings us face to face with our guilt and our shame. With our guilt and our shame. The Lord does that. Now, unless you're really strange, that's a hard place to go. To look at your guilt and to look at your shame. Engaging with past guilt, however far back it goes, or engaging with shame, and that would be really the sins that maybe have been committed against you, or just the shame connected with the sins you've committed. It's very natural and easy to avoid. I don't want to talk about it. That's too hard to look at. That's too ugly. I just, I just want to keep my eyes closed. Going into this kind of wilderness requires the Lord to bring you there. Because honestly, we just won't go on our own. But when the Lord begins to inspire someone to take that step into the wilderness, in that inspiration comes a certain kind of expectation that I'm going to go into this place and actually there's freedom on the other side. It's scary, but the freedom and the relief is so much more attractive than the fear. And so the Lord pushes you. Now, wilderness, as I said, is the last place we naturally desire to be, but it is the place we have to walk if we're going to ever be free. Our journey into wilderness, as you begin to walk, it requires you to be stripped of, of everything. It's stripped of every dependency that you had, and I think for our world today, it's every distraction that you might have to distract you and divert you from having to deal with what's actually there. But when you're there, what happens is your true self is revealed in its fullness, both its beauty and its ugliness. It's all there. And then comes the baptism, where you're immersed. And it's not, I'll just wash my hands, though you should do that right now. I will wash my hands, right? It is full immersion. Your entire life, 
all of that guilt, all of that shame is immersed and covered. I think it could be said, and this is why Mark starts here, that the beginning of meeting the Lord starts in this wilderness. I may go so far as to say that you cannot meet the Lord unless you're willing to walk into that. Because guess what? That's where he is. Now, it's important to remember that John the Baptist is not um, opening the way. He is preparing the way that God is going to open. Okay? God does this. And at the heart of John's message is this idea that there's someone who's coming. And, and he's going to baptize you completely differently. And you need to be ready for that. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. See, John's baptism, if you think about it, just practically speaking, John's baptism was something you could do every day. Right? I, I got to go out there, screwed up again, or thought about this thing I did, I forgot, and, and you could go out there all the time. And, and it was really uh, quite temporary. But Jesus is going to baptize with something that's completely permanent. It's not an earthly baptism. It's a spiritual baptism. It's a spiritual cleansing where he will cleanse you of everything and not just these external things. And so John is, is calling people. They are inspired to come out. I want to meet the Lord. I want to get ready, so I'm going to face my shame. I'm going to face my guilt because I want to meet the Lord. And crowds are gathering. And John maybe is tempted like, dang, I'm a pretty good preacher. Lots of people showing up. I got like a mega church out in the woods here. This is fantastic. I should start a website or something. But we see that John has no concern for himself. John has no desire to draw people to himself. He is just pointing to the Savior. There's one that's coming. There's one that's coming. Later, as John's, or Jesus' ministry grows and the disciples begin to shift towards Jesus, the few that have stuck with John are kind of bothered. And they go, John, uh, are you okay with this? Jesus is over there baptizing now. Like, he's kind of taking your to wind a little bit. And John, for his part, responds so beautifully. He says, it's not about me. In fact, I, I got to decrease and he's got to increase. Man, that all preachers and pastors and authors and podcasters would feel the same way. I assure you that If you're reading a book or you've found a new philosophy or teaching that has been helpful to you, I'm glad it has. But if it isn't leading you to Christ, if that's not its goal, then ultimately it's not going to satisfy or heal what needs to be healed. There's some great authors out there, great podcasters, great stuff, but man, they're only great insofar as they point to Christ because that's where the true healing comes from. Now, when Jesus shows up, John is pretty surprised, right? He knew Jesus, but it's interesting. Mark says, oh, there's a prophet coming. John appeared. And John says, there's someone coming. Jesus appears. And so you can see where Mark is pointing to. 
John is quite surprised. Jesus comes from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John. If you read in the other narratives, in Matthew or Luke, you will see that John's like, what are you doing here? You, you shouldn't be being baptized here, which it makes sense because John knows who Jesus is. And John's baptism is for repentance. And repentance is for sinners. And Jesus is not a sinner. So we should go, why is Jesus being baptized? This does not make a lot of sense. Why does Jesus, who is sinless, participate in a sinner's confession? But this is where we begin to see the heart of the gospel. The gospel is not advice. The gospel is not instructions. The gospel is not the three steps to success. The gospel is news of what Jesus has done for you. Never forget that. This is the heart of the gospel here. Jesus came to save sinners. He didn't just come to show you the way. He is the way. Even though Jesus doesn't require righteousness, right? He has all the fullness of righteousness He needs. Every man, woman, and child does. And just as Jesus didn't go to the cross for His own sins and for Himself, so Jesus goes to the Jordan River on behalf of those He loves. When he says, which he does in Matthew, in response to John, who says, I'm, I shouldn't be baptizing you, what's going on? He says to him, this is to fulfill all righteousness. There's a strange statement. But what he means is that he is doing everything necessary to produce a righteousness that he is going to give away. He doesn't need any righteousness for himself. He is creating a righteousness that He's freely going to give to those who believe. And so what you see is the heart of the gospel here. And at the heart of the gospel is, is one big word or one simple phrase. Substitution. That Jesus in my place. What's the gospel? Jesus in my place in life and in death. He lives a life that I couldn't live. He dies a death that we deserve. And He gives me His righteousness that He produces that I couldn't produce myself. And we simply believe. And so you see it in the very baptism here where Jesus is fully joining with mankind in their broken humanity. He is not just identifying Himself like, hey, I know what it's like. He immerses Himself into our guilt. He immerses Himself into our shame. In a way that, if you really start thinking about it, is pretty incomprehensible. Because you have the Creator becoming like His creation. You have the perfect Holy One becoming and entering into our imperfection. Jesus is, there's a lot of people in the world and in history that might be more exciting, that might be more loud and, and, and colorful than Jesus, but there's no one more beautiful. Because Jesus chooses to stand among the dirty and the sick and the sore. And so, here's what follows. If you don't want to talk about your guilt and shame, you know, ah, that, that, that's past his past. 
And Jesus has nothing for you. Jesus came to save the sick and the sore, the lost and the broken, the guilty and the shame-filled. And when you are willing to draw close to him, he says, I'll take it all. I'll take it all and cleanse you of it all. We read in other gospels that, as I said, John reluctantly baptizes Jesus. And something happens when he does that's pretty supernatural. So he goes in and he, in many ways, immerses himself into the uck of mankind. He didn't need to himself because he's perfect, he's clean, but he made himself dirty. And when he comes out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is a beautiful picture of of what our salvation is like, but also the anointing of Jesus in this moment. So something is happening that's powerful. It's very Trinitarian. You got Jesus there. You got the Holy Spirit coming down like some kind of dove thing. And you have the Father speaking. And so you have this beautiful picture. And there's this mysterious anointing of God that the Romans would read and go, this seems kind of weird. But they may understand it kind of like the coronation of a king. Kings would be anointed and empowered to fulfill their mission. And what's Jesus' mission? Well, it's to build a kingdom. And Isaiah 61 tells us exactly how he's going to do it. Using these same words to describe this moment. It says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Okay, well, Jesus, why are you anointed? Why did the Holy Spirit come down and fill you? Like, what was the whole point? And what is I'm bringing good news. That's the gospel. I'm bringing good news to the poor. And not just the poor in money, but the poor in spirit. Those who are broken in shame and full of guilt. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. One of the most frequent phrases in the New Testament to describe someone's addiction to sin is slavery. He says, I am proclaiming freedom to the captives. I am opening the prison to those who are bound. He goes on. I am proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. I bring comfort to all who mourn and to grant those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. I've met with many people over the years, couples, individuals, whose life feels like it's in ashes. And oftentimes, the best thing to tell them is to hope in the resurrection. What I mean by that is the death of Jesus must have been one of the most hopeless, helpless situations you could ever imagine. It was a moment where the lives of the disciples and the life of everyone just like, felt like ashes. Like what? And I've seen marriages in ashes. I've seen individuals in ashes. But do we understand the power of the resurrection is that which can take what is dead and make it alive. That which is ashes and make it beautiful. That which is hopeless and gives certainty of hope. 
it's beautiful. And that's the power of the gospel. So you see this incredible moment where Jesus is empowered by the Spirit and it's, it's picturing, it's the climax of everything, like this is it. And you hear the voice of the Lord saying, you are my son. He is not only going to just act on behalf of God, he is going to act as God, as God's son. And so it follows to understand that um, later Jesus will say in John, I don't speak on my own authority. We understand that when Jesus, when you're reading the Gospels and you're reading Jesus' words, these aren't just the words of a good Jewish teacher and rabbi. These are the very words of God. The very acts of God. It's been said by people smarter than me that, that Christ is not just God-like, but God is actually Christ-like. If you want to see what God is like, look at the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And there you'll see the full revelation of who he is in his heart. But that's not what's most noteworthy in this moment. What's most noteworthy for me in this moment is something I've gone back to again and again as a pastor, as when, especially when I'm discouraged. Uh, as a parent, when I'm discouraged, where I haven't done the right things or enough things or I've done the wrong things. Jesus hears the voice of his father and he says, you are my son and in you I am pleased. Do we realize that the moment that is spoken, Jesus hasn't done diddly yet? He hasn't done anything. That's such a beautiful picture of the gospel. And what I mean by that is that in Christ, God delights in you. If I do, no, no, no. He just delights in you. He's pleased in you. Our baptism is a beautiful reminder. I think as we take communion, we, we remind ourselves of that baptism over and over again. It's like a baptismal renewal of who I am in Christ, who I am in Christ. And that first time you were baptized, if you were not baptized and you're a Christian, I encourage you to be baptized. Because that first time is a baptism, it's, I think I wrote it down, Baptism isn't de declaring our perfection. Like, I got it figured out. I believe now. Our baptism is really our salvation. Every time we take communion, it's a re regular declaration of God's pleasure in me despite my imperfection. It's a constant declaration because it doesn't take much for us to understand and see and feel our imperfection. We almost don't need to be reminded of that but perhaps we need to be reminded of God's pleasure, that God is well-pleased in you. Now, then you get the last part. Because everyone's had that uh, moment of, yes, I love the Lord and the Lord loves me and it's beautiful and everything. I went into the wilderness. I looked at my shame and my guilt and Jesus says, yes, I covered it. I paid for it all. Let's move forward. And then you're back in the wilderness. This is what happens. And it's not by accident. Which might not be comforting. Verse 12 and 13, Jesus is immediately led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Whoa, 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 whoa. 
Like he went out, faced all the guilt and shame. Maybe you've been there. Had the supernatural experience of God communicating his approval. You're like, yes. And then you're back in darkness. It says he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Jesus' path to this redemptive plan takes some surprising turns, as does our own story. After this incredible high, right, this public anointing of the Holy Spirit, the voice of the Lord is like, whoa, he's down to the lowest lows, it feels like. And he's not being tempted by some junior varsity demon. Think about that. How often do we like, oh, you know, the devil, I'm not sure the devil's taking his time to spend with you. Maybe. There are lots of agents of the devil, but the devil himself comes and tempts Jesus, and we can imagine it is the most powerful temptation you could face. Some of the greatest moments of temptation follow some of the greatest moments of exaltation I've found. Here we see it's not by accident that Jesus finds himself in the wilderness again. It's a different wilderness. It's by divine design. The Lord led him there. Now, biblically speaking, which I won't go into too much, this is a picture of Israel, right? If you look in the Old Testament, Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus is there for 40 days. And it is a picture of where Israel failed, Jesus is going to succeed. He is the, the, the perfect Israelite, the new Israelite, the, the son of Abraham who, who functioned and did it right. Now, theologically speaking, we know that God doesn't tempt. And yet we see Him leading His people and particularly his son, into a place to be tested and tempted. It's often that we appreciate God leading us into good things. Dare we learn to appreciate the times when he leads us into confrontation with bad things. Into wilderness. Now, historically, if you talk about, like, where is Jesus at exactly, no one's really sure where this wilderness is. There's an area between, they know it's different than where John was in the Jordan, and there's an area between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea, a very large wilderness. I'll probably pronounce it wrong. I think it's called Jeshaman. And it's known as the place of the devastation. The devastation. So, Personally, if I were to describe what wilderness feels like, I would say it's where I feel devastated. Maybe I feel devastated physically. Maybe I feel devastated emotionally. Maybe I feel devastated materially, relationally, where everything is just broken. And this is as a believer. Right? So I've had my moment of facing my shame and guilt. I've, I've had the moment of like, man, I know the Lord loves me. Awesome. And then suddenly, oh, life is hard? thought it was supposed to be glorious from this point on. What we see is that wilderness is that place where 
You feel devastated, you feel lost, you feel uncertain, you feel confused about decisions, about directions. It's the place where you often feel empty, just empty and hungry, dissatisfied with life. But here's what it is for everyone, although it might be a little bit different, feel different for Here's what it certainly is for everyone. It's that hellish place where you're so desperate for rescue. The wilderness is not bad, but in the wilderness is the tempter. And the temptation is to find another savior to save you from the hell that you're in. And the temptation is to go back to the same guilt and shame of the first wilderness to save you. And that's not what God wants. He actually leads us into this place to deepen our relationship with him. What's interesting is that Matthew and Luke provide really lengthy explanations for this narrative. They give all the details. This is what the devil says. This is what Jesus says. And, and I preached on Matthew and preached a wonderful sermon on the details of this temptation, right? But Mark doesn't do that. So we can't spend our time in Matthew and Luke if we're going to be in Mark. And so Mark, his is really short. He has like a couple sentences without any description of the conversation, which is interesting. Could be that Rome and the Romans don't really care about the details of the battle. Who won? Well, we see Jesus won. And in many ways where Adam failed in his temptation in the garden... Jesus, the last Adam, succeeds. But the one unique part that they give about this is wild animals. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with wild animals. That's not in Matthew, that's not in Luke. That's kind of weird. Seems random. But perhaps not if you understand Mark. Mark what Mark's trying to perhaps encourage us with. You see, it was written during the persecution of Nero, right? You may not know, or perhaps you're familiar with that, the historians believe that Christians died in horrible ways and are dying in horrible ways as he's writing. One of the ways was they would cover Christians in wild animal skins and feed them to dogs. And another, they would throw them in the arena to larger animals and they would obviously be consumed or killed. So, how would you hear that, right? As a believer reading it, that Jesus goes into this wilderness place with his wild animals and he comes out unscathed. I think he employs his temptation to inform both the persecuted and the persecutors. The persecuted to be encouraged. Guess what? Angels ministered to Jesus. Jesus was there. Angels were there. There's help for you. And also to the persecutors that they ultimately will not be victorious. But it would encourage. Because for all of us, you know, the truth is this. For all of us, life gets wild. And I don't mean like wild, right? 
I mean like hard, painful, dangerous. And it's at those moments we think, I'm all alone. And Mark is trying to tell us, no, you're not. No matter how wild it gets, no matter how dangerous it gets, that Jesus is greater. That Jesus didn't only go to the baptism and into the wilderness for us. He is actually with us right now, able to minister to us in the wilderness as we see in Hebrews since then, we have a high, a great high priest. I don't, when you think of first, think of high priest. You think of like the guy dressed in robes and weird breastplates, and he's out, you know, away from the people in the safety of the temple and not really involved in the life of the people. That's what I think, going through the rituals. But what we see is that he is the one who actually has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has faced them. One who is in every respect, that's a powerful statement, in every way, been tempted like we are. Been tempted to, to find a savior out of that wilderness that is bad, that's not Jesus. And yet he has done it without sin. Mark is trying to turn us to Christ. Jesus understands any and every temptation that you might be experiencing in your own wilderness. No, you did not choose that wilderness, but dare I say, the Lord may have chosen it for you. Don't believe the lie as you are struggling, seeing wild animals about to eat you. The lie that Martin Luther said the devil always tells, and that is this that you can't trust the love and grace of Christ and you need to take the matter into your own hands. No. You need to lean on the Lord. You need to turn to the Lord. You need to trust the Lord. We don't ever go into wilderness alone. Jesus has promised to never leave us nor forsake us, no matter how big that wild animal might be or how dark that wilderness might feel. Those who do not know Him, I want to encourage you that Jesus knows you. And he understands whatever darkness you have found yourself in, whatever darkness you have chosen or has been thrust upon you, he knows. And all of us could be encouraged that there is not a single temptation that can conquer us because we know the one who has conquered the greatest of temptations. Dare we say, God actually walks us into wilderness because he himself wants you to trust him to walk you out of it. Your wilderness is not a curse. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not even saying it's not scary. It probably is quite painful. But the enemy isn't the wilderness itself. The enemy is in the wilderness. It's not a curse. I say it's not an accident. My prayer is that you will perhaps even sometime see it as the gospel reveals it, as a gift from the Lord to know him more, to depend upon him more, and to trust him more, to give you the life that you never thought possible. Wilderness, dare I say, draws us closer to Jesus more than anything else. If you are sitting right now in your shame and your guilt and you're afraid to actually come to light, please don't be. 
There are many brothers and sisters who have walked that same path into wilderness. It is the path to freedom. And it is the path to transformation. And you don't walk alone because brothers and sisters have walked that. You don't walk alone because Jesus has walked that. And he wants to walk with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace to us. But more than anything, we praise you that Jesus, you have come and you have gone into the wilderness for us. That you have faced our guilt and our shame. You have experienced and immersed yourself in our ugliness and you have promised to take it and to cleanse us. Lord, I pray you help us to believe more deeply in the gospel, to believe that we are loved, that you are pleased in us and that you were pleased in us before we did anything, that you saw us in our sin and you chose to love us. And even as we delight in that truth, Lord, we recognize that we don't go home to be with you immediately, that there's still wilderness to walk in. Would you walk with us, Lord? Would you help us to fight the temptation to turn to other things or other people, even old things that we once turned to instead of you? Help us to turn to you, to trust you, to walk us out of that wilderness and to give us a life we never could have imagined without it. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. As we take communion this morning, I again remind you that this is a baptism renewal service. It's an act, if you will, where you recognize what has been cleansed from you, all of your guilt, all of your shame, and Jesus taking that, and what has he given you in return? His righteousness. So it's a celebration. It's a joy. Don't just make it a routine. It's a reminder. It's you preaching the gospel to yourself that the Lord is pleased with you. But I did this. He knows. Covered. Confessed and covered. So I have joy in that. If you are not a Christian, it's not, it doesn't make sense for you to participate in this. We love you, and we want you to know the love of Christ. We want you to be freed from the guilt and shame that you will, perhaps are living in right now. I pray you will turn to Christ, that you will come up and pray with me. I would love to introduce you to your Savior. If you are a Christian in name, but not actually in heart, don't take communion. You're faking everybody else out, but you're not faking the Lord. And he cautions anyone, don't take communion in a, in a manner that's unworthy. And you're just not telling truth about yourself. Get your heart right. You're pretending to walk with the Lord, and you're walking after your sin. Turn and repent and believe. And if you're a brother and sister of Christ is out of unity with one another, this is actually a shared meal, though it takes place at two different tables and doesn't really feel like much of a meal because it's a teeny little cracker. But it is supposed to be a shared meal. We do this together as God's people, saved from the same sin by the same Savior, by the same grace. So this isn't like, oh, table for all the people who are clean. No, it's a table of people with the courage and the faith to admit that they're dirty. And we look forward to the day when we'll all look really good with the Lord in heaven, free of sin. And it reminds us of that. If you have kids in Restoration Kids, please get them now. For everyone else, let's stand and sing songs to our Savior.